Welcome back to JB Squared. I am JB Hager, joined by Johan Bernil. We're going to take a look at stage eight uh, recap from today and look ahead at a mountain finish on stage nine tomorrow. And that has some historical significance so that Johan will share a great story with us. Before we get into everything that happened today and what's going to happen tomorrow, let's check in real quick with a couple of our sponsors. And I've got a couple of offers for you. Today's show is brought to you by Ventum. Uh, maybe you're a lot like me and you were like a roadie forever and you got kind of curious about gravel bikes, what all the, all this hype and the uh, explosion of gravel racing and you want to pick one up. I think this is really, really cool. You can get into a new GS1, their new gravel bike with the SRAM Apex AXS starting for just 2,999 bucks. Now, of course you can always upgrade from that, whatever you want, the next level of SRAM or other components, whatever your preference is. And this is what I think is really cool about Ventum, uh, both on their road bikes and their gravel bikes. It's the same frame, whether you're specking, that, specking it out as a $3,000 bike or a $15,000 bike, it's the exact same frame. Uh, a lot of other brands will downgrade the carbon is probably the best way to describe it uh, to get the price point down. It's the same exact frame. And then of course you could always change the components later and just be on the best of the best. So if you're looking for an NS1, the road bike, or the GS1, uh, definitely check out Ventum Bikes. Spend some time on their site. Go through the build out. You get to pick everything. You get to decide which handlebars. You get to decide uh, what crank uh, crank length you want. Um, you can decide on the, uh, the included alloy wheels or upgrade them to something bigger and better if you like. Uh, it's really fun to go through the build tweak the colors, send it to a friend, get their feedback. And you can get 10% off when you use the code WEDU, W-E-D-U, at checkout at VentumRacing.com slash the move. Today's show is also brought to you by Ketone IQ, made by our friends at HVMN. In fact, on an upcoming show, we're going to talk to Michael, uh, who's behind the company, and he's a really interesting guy. We had him on last year, so look forward to that. But uh, I've been taking it for a few months, and I can definitely notice a difference um, with the mental clarity, especially coming into the to this month when we're here in July recording i'm i'm co-hosting two shows and then doing a lot of production putting things out in years past i would just feel like bonked like and i just and fine now it's i think i think it's a lot of it's attributed to ketone iq because i started taking them a couple two three months ago every day daily out here and i just feel like i have that extra level of energy to push on through and the mental clarity to just push on through it's really made a difference in my life uh, so if you want to try, like, I honestly recommend you try it for like three months, you will see a difference, but, uh, you can do a subscription and save 30% off with our code. So 30% off your subscription order of ketone IQ at hvmn.com slash the move. Again, visit hvmn.com slash the move and subscribe upon checkout for 30% off. Okay, Johan, let's jump right in with an, an unfortunate incident from uh, today's tour. Everyone has been just completely into the story of Mark Cavendish trying to break the record for most Tour de France stage wins over the great Eddie Merckx. And we've all, I mean, that's just a storyline we've been glued to for a couple of years. Crashed out today, broken collarbone. Uh, I think... You know, it's funny. It's interesting when you watch bike racing with with former pros, you guys can look at the way they are sitting on the pavement and immediately know if they're going to get up or not. 
this was a case you could see him holding his shoulder and elbow and we all knew his tour was over. Yeah. I mean, so unfortunate, you know, especially, uh, after yesterday's second place, almost win, uh, it, it looked really good for calf to, you know, there's obviously no, was no guarantee, but with still three or four bunch prints left, uh, there was definitely a possibility that he could get that win number 35. Uh, he looked in great shape and there you see, you know, the, how fragile the riders are and, and how everything can be over in a heartbeat. You know, I mean, look at, look at Carapaz, uh, stage one, <laughs> you know, one of the, one of the contenders for the, for the podium out in stage one. Um, yeah, it was, it was really, and, 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 and it was, it was probably that crash or it's one of those crashes that can happen so many times that happen that almost happens so many times, you know, there's a little wave in the peloton, you touch the brakes, you either, you know, some, most of the time they don't crash. And then when you normally, when you crash, okay, you know, you fall over. And so he was not the first one to crash. Like, I think, you know, if we looked at the, at the, at the replay, there was, there was a little movement, probably like 10, 20 riders in front of him. There was a wave through the peloton. And then finally, he was there on the ground. Um, didn't look like they were going very fast either. It was just very, very unfortunate. Um, collarbones, obviously, we all know that collarbones is the most frequent injury for a cyclist. Um, and yeah, I mean, when I saw him laying there, I said, "Oh, that's 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 over. That's like you know, you, you could you could see it straight away." Uh, he was in incredible pain, and uh, yeah. It's so, 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 so sad to see because I really, really believe that he had that stage within him. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So then to see the devastation, you know, on, on, on his face when he was there in the ambulance, staring in, staring in front of him. Um, yeah. It, and on the heels of uh, him saying that he's in his best form ever. Yeah. Well, I don't, I mean, that's, I think that's a bit of a, uh, euphemism, you know, uh, maybe, that, maybe his, the best he's ever felt is different well, than I mean, the best I, peak form. I think, I think, I think what he may, what he means is that he definitely felt that like he was growing and that he felt a lot better than the Giro and it, it kind of all was going to plan. You know, he did the Giro to prepare for the tour, finally won that last stage in, in Rome. And, and, you know, now he got close yesterday. I mean, in his mind, Yesterday evening, after, you know, getting over the disappointment, there was no doubt in his mind that he would get that stage number 35, you know, and then a few, a few hours later, you're on the deck and it's game over. Now I'm, once this all happened, I immediately thought of like, what is Johan going to say? Um, let's say you're his director or his, you know, uh, a father figure to Mark Cavendish People are going to start asking, do you stick around another year? What would you say to him? Well, you, I mean, it, guys... JB, it's very different what I would have said back in the days than what I would say now. <laughs> okay, right? give us both. I want to hear both. Now you got me. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's, I, I think, you know, if you're, well, first of all, he's out of a contract, right? So uh, he has announced his retirement already. And that I was think... complicated last year to get that yeah. one contract. Yeah. So, um, I, I think, I think that he, he's obviously shown that he, that he can still do it, 
getting a contract should not be a problem. I think he got really caught in up into this, you know, project of this new team with Jérôme Pinot, who was an ex-teammate of his at Quick Step back in the days. And then basically that team fell through and it was very, very late. All the teams were full. And obviously Mark Cavendish, you know, he wants to feel some appreciation of his Palmares, right? He, there's a certain value to it. He's not, he's not going after the money, but he wants to feel valued, you know? So I think that was the big uh, problem that he was in this, in, you know, in October, November, there was no team. He started negotiating in December and uh, budgets were done, you know? So it would, it would definitely, it would take an extra effort of a particular sponsor to open up, you know, more budget. And that's the way these teams are run. So um, I can't say uh, me being in my, in my years as a director that I would say no, because <coughs> sorry. Um, let's, you know, I, I agreed with Lance's comeback when he was 38, <laughs> you know, it was not the smartest decision, uh, neither from him or, or, or from me. So that uh, the old you would have said, Mark, you're coming back that, next year. Oh, let's, let's, let's go for it. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Now I would say no, no. <laughs> Listen, you know, Mark Cavendish is a legend, whether he gets that victory number 35 or not, right. it, it will not change anything to, uh, you know, his legacy. The guy won 150 something or 160 races, uh, 54 stages in Grand Tours, 34. I mean, he he shares a, he shares a record with Eddie Merckx. I mean, you know, if you're able to say in cycling that you share a record with Eddie Merckx, you you are one of the greatest. Yeah, he's in a position now. He will be talked about long after he's gone. Yeah. Yeah, that's plus, what more could plus you on ask the contrary, for? On the contrary, you know, there's absolutely no guarantee that it's going to happen. So is it worth it? I personally think that, and I I mean, I don't, I could be wrong. In my opinion, this will be it for him. You know, he's come to an age, he has done it all. Uh, he has, he's the father of five children. Let's not mm -hmm. forget, mm -hmm. you know, so all of his children has have had to miss him a lot for a lot of important events. I think personally, and he's, I spoke to him quite a bit when we were in Mallorca together last, uh, last year on, on the move Mallorca, uh, cycling camp. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he's a family man. Um, you know, it was clear, look, even when he announced his retirement in the Giro, he did it together with his wife and his kids present, um, on that press conference. So, uh, I think, I don't know if he's still going to race this year. I have no idea. Um, but definitely. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, collarbone, he could race again before the season wraps. What would be important to him? Collarbone, collarbone is no big deal. You know, yeah. it's no big But what's what's left on the calendar that he would earmark if he wanted to finish out the season? I mean, you know, he, he could, in theory, uh, do the Vuelta and try to win a stage there. <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, it. Yeah, it's, it's. I think the motivation cannot be there. This, this, this number thirty-five is what kept him going. Yeah. In my opinion, you know, I, I'm not in his mind, of course. Uh, I know for a fact that he loves to ride his bike, but now that this dream is over, I think that it may be the last time that we've seen Mark Cavendish on a in a bike race.
The other thing I thought about after his crash, that um, relegation that did not happen to Phillipson yesterday becomes more significant. Because mm. yesterday we're like, oh, Kevin, because he got second. Had they relegated uh, Phillipson, that would have been a win. It would have been the record. Not the way he would want to win. Yeah, that's the thing, JB. <laughs> you know, I mean, I... Uh, would Cavendish want to get the record in that way? No. I mean, yeah. listen, I mean, there are, there are probably, uh, I don't know if there's any, I don't know actually if there's any wins in those 34 after somebody got relegated. Neither do I know if maybe, maybe Eddie Merckx even got one after somebody else yeah. got relegated. Yeah. No, right. We yeah. don't, we don't think about those things until now we have this historical moment. So, but really, to to get it on relegation, mm, I personally don't think he would he would want that. Uh, so I'm I'm gonna dig back into this. Okay, we know what the old Johan is saying. <laughs> so get back on the bike <laughs> in your sling, <laughs> and then let's go deeper on a conversation. Like you're talking to Mark, and he's like, "Man, Johan, do I come back? Do I not? What would you say? How would you verbalize that to him?" I would, I mean, listen, I would definitely let him make his own choice and definitely tell him that he needs to think about it and talk with his family. And it's, 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 you know, it's a group decision, you know, uh, and whatever, whatever he, he, he really wants to do. I mean, I personally think a guy like Cavendish, if he would make the decision to keep going, it's because he really believes and, and has all the confidence in the world in him that he can do, he can break that record. But it it will not change anything for him. It, mm -hmm. it doesn't change anything. He is Mark Cavendish. He's the best sprinter we've seen, you know, with the biggest Palmares. And um nah. I, I personally I would I would I would advise him to just call it a day. It's yeah. because you know it wasn't meant to be. It, you know, at the end of the day, he is the record holder of the most wins in the Tour de France together with Eddie Merckx. It's not a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he could, he could parlay this into some, you know, commentary if he wanted, if we could understand a word he's saying, that would help. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. <laughs> and you probably never thought ever as a director that later you'd be doing commentary. Never. <laughs> so you never, never. know where it's going to go no, after your no, racing career. No. You never know. No. But I don't, I mean, I don't think, I don't think Mark, I mean, listen, he, he has five kids and he has a few young kids. So yeah. I, I think it's time he deserved and his children deserve and his wife deserves to have him around. I mean, things like this today also, I mean, let's just take away the whole drama and, you know, of the record, but you know, these, these guys crash and yeah. sprinters can crash hard. You know I mean? And cycling becomes more and more dangerous. You're getting with these young kids and, you know, th these guys don't break. Luckily, so a, co a collarbone is mild and almost every cyclist has that at some point. But, yeah, something more it's, serious. It's nothing. But, but you know, going another year, it's another year of, you know, like pushing, pushing the limit. Like, okay, you know, how many times more do I have an opportunity to crash? You know, there's yeah. opportunities to win, but there's a lot of opportunities you can crash. Yeah. And that's also for the family. You know, I mean. If you've if you've gotten away with crashes and not being really injured so many times, there's also a time to say, okay, I should not push the the limit too far. Yeah, it's 
been and enough. you you can attest to this. How much do you enjoy seeing being there for your son to bike race and support him? Like oh, the, the, the fatherhood part. Like I, those those who don't know, I know most of you don't think I ever raced a bike, but I I did for. About I, I, I I asked you. I asked you once, Debbie. I, I know now. <laughs> but when my daughter started getting into sports, she got into water sports and eventually became a world champion. And to me driving a boat for her and supporting her and traveling with her was so much more rewarding than, yeah. than anything I ever did for myself. And, and, and as far as I can remember, the, uh, Mark told me last year that he has at least one of his sons. I mean, or a few of his kids are really, really obsessed with cycling, like obsessed yeah. with cycling. Um, so I think it's for him, it's time to go do that now. Okay. All right. And we covered a lot with Mark Cavendish. We'll, we'll move on from that because there were two other uh, crashes that uh, affected the potential podium spot. Uh, we saw both uh, Yates and Landa go down together and they both yeah. lost, what, 46, 47 seconds. Yeah, that was, that was close to the finish. I think it was about like between five and six K to go. So outside of the three kilometer limit. Um, and yeah, I mean, Adam Yates, uh, obviously Adam Yates, a big, he was in fourth position, a big candidate, uh, no, sorry, Simon Yates, uh, Simon Yates of, uh, of, uh, Jayco Alula, um, went down, got back up pretty quick, but you already know there that you're not coming back. It's that's, that's it. You know? So, um, it changed the GC a little bit. Carlos Rodriguez is now in fourth, I guess. And then Adam Yates is in fifth and uh, Simon Yates is in sixth now. Um, he, they got away pretty good with 40 something seconds. Uh, it could have been more, you know, straight away on a spare bike, a few teammates with him and just, you know, as quickly as possible. So 40 second, 47 seconds. It's, uh, I mean, still, okay. He's still, he's still there. He's still in contention for the podium, but. It can happen anytime. It can happen anytime. It can also happen to to Pogacar or and 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 Vingegaard and and Hindley. Um, the, the, you know, it's all that that danger is always there. Yeah, and seeing you know those three people we've just mentioned, the, the crashes affecting the race. It just reminds me of that of the era with you and Lance. That how many stars have to align? It's it's not just being the best bike racer and ah. the best director. It's there's a million stars that have to align. And yeah. uh, it's just it's really wild when you think back on it. Um, let's yeah. talk about uh, uh, Mads Peterson's win, which was uh, impressive, especially we've been talking about Alpeson and how that duo is near impossible to beat. He did it today. And you've got some some intel, some scoops on mm -hmm. uh, Peterson and his director. And yeah, I think it's interesting how um, how racers will will earmark these moments way out yeah. so tell us more about that yeah i mean i am uh, i'm in contact with one of his directors frequently and um i have the text here i mean he uh um so some riders like the gc riders they go and and, and recon the the crucial stages right of the tour de france the mountain stages um time trials um other teams and other riders, type of riders, go and recon other stages, stages that are suitable for them. And I have this text here uh, sent to me on the 5th of June. Um, they went to recon today's stage into the Limousin. And he said, Tour de France stage eight, ideal for Peterson. 
Um, and I had forgotten about this actually about this text. <laughs> You would have, it would have come in handy for outcomes, I am, huh? I am, I am, now, I am now, I mean, that's, that happens when you get so many texts. I had forgotten about it. So, okay. Uh, with, with, but they, they, they came in with a plan. They came in with yeah. a plan. You could clearly see also during the stage, uh, little Trek. It's apparently we have to say little, little Trek. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's easy just to say little track. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, normally when I say little, it's 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 always little over here too. Little. The, the supermarket. But but I think they they want us to little. say little track to make sure yeah. that track doesn't sound like little track. <laughs> Anyways, that team um, took, you know, some kind of somewhat control over the race. Um, they they did a lot of work to bring that breakaway back. Uh, so they clearly came in with a plan, and um, and they were right. I mean, if you look if you look at uh, if you watch the post race interview of Jasper Philipsen, he said that uh, he knew on beforehand that Mats Pedersen would be his main rival on this finish, and he was right. Well, you know, he was. I, I would love your 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 best intelligent guess here. When they said this is perfect for Mads Peterson, is it because it was a difficult stage uh, throughout well, difficult, and the finish or both? Yeah, difficult stage and also a slightly uphill finish. Um, you know, if you look at the speed uh, in the last uh, 300 meters, the average speed uh, of, of other sprints, it's sometimes 70, sometimes 74 kilometers per hour. Today was 54, 55 kilometers per hour because it was a three, three and a half percent incline. So uh, that's with huge power and, and less speed. And, and that's what Mats Peterson excels in, obviously. Um, he's won a lot of races like that already. And, and also, I mean, sometimes he, he wins sprints when everybody's dead, you know, like he, he won the world championships like this in 2019. Um, he won, uh, Gent to one year like this. Um, also after, you know, a really hard race when, when the speed, when everybody's dead and the speed in the sprint is not super, super high. Um, you know, in the Vuelta, I re remember last year, every, every time it was a slightly uphill finish, there was no, no, nobody who came close to him. Mm. Now in the Tour de France, you know this is different. You know, I mean, even even a guy like Peterson today had no problem at all with the difficulties of the stage and 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 with uh, with the incline on the finish. But um, yeah, I mean, Mats Peterson is you know he is on 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 his good days. He's very very strong. Had a perfect lead out, and uh, and also let's not forget, you know, this guy his he won his first Grand Tour stage in last year's Tour de France, his first ever Grand Tour stage. And since then, back-to-back -back Tour de France last year, Vuelta España last year, Giro d'Italia this year, and Tour de France this year, his last four Grand Tours, he has won stages in all of them. Wow. That's, uh, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> that is impressive. Um... Let's see. Oh, and I know you wanted to talk about, and this has been an ongoing theme through these first eight stages. You wanted to talk about uh, Jumbo Visma's strategy today. And I'm mm -hmm. sure we're going to yeah. talk about that tomorrow when we yeah. get to tomorrow as well. Well, we're going to talk about it every day, uh, JB, because yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's one of the two strongest teams in the race. They have one of the big favorites. So uh, the problem with the problem with Jumbo Visma they have is that they have 
their main goal is it's it's really a difficult situation they're in, you know, because they have their main goal to win the tour and everything is in function of that or should be. Now, the problem they have, which is which is a luxury problem, is they have a guy on the team called Walt Van Aert, who who is an unbelievable machine. I mean, personally, I mean, I, I thought back, I thought back on that ride he did um when when Vokacha won the stage on stage six. I thought about this this morning. I said, you know what? Independently of what happened for the rest of the, the stages, this Walt van Aert's performance is the performance of the Tour de France. Hmm. It may not be in terms in terms of results, but what he did that day was incredible. And there's also nobody in the Tour, nobody, not even Pogacar or Ringegaard or Van der Poel or nobody can do this. They, they can't. They can't go at kilometer zero. Drop everybody at kilometer zero, then get in the brake, then drive the brake, go set the tempo on the first climb on the Col d'Aspin, set the tempo of the breakaway on the Tourmalet, get over it, and then pull the the the, the leaders until five kilometers to go, making us there's nobody who can do that. The thing is that in order to have, I mean, I understand, you know, he's a big champion, you know, he wants to win stages too. And and the best situation would be that Walt van Aert wins a stage and then, you know, he's kind of less anxious for that stage win. And he can, and I'm not saying even if he doesn't win a stage, he's still going to go hundred percent for the team. We saw that two days ago. Um, but Let's... it is, it is a tricky, it is a tricky approach because today, for example, they could easily have just set attempt, not care about the breakaway, whatever. Whatever happened, you know, the other teams would have pulled now, but they really got involved at some point in controlling the race for the stage win with Wout. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, that's that obviously will take a lot out of certain teammates like uh, a Tish Benoit, like a Dylan Van Barle, like uh, Christophe Laporte, um, and and others, you know, so um. I understand why they're doing it, but mm, I hope, I hope it doesn't. I mean, we've said this already many times, you know, as, ah, you know, they're working too hard. I mean, it seems nowadays that doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> uh, recovery has clearly gotten better. It's unbelievable, <laughs> actually. Yeah, it's, it yeah. is, it is crazy. It is crazy. Like, look, like for, for Van Aert today was, was a relatively easy stage. Uh, you know, at, at the end, of course, he had to, he had to try to win, but uh, for the team, it was not an easy stage, and they have a big day tomorrow. Yeah, um, let's elaborate a little bit more on what happened to Walt Van Aert in that sprint because we we just went on and on about Mads Peterson. Yeah, how fast he was over Philipson. Walt was just as fast, but it just didn't play out for him. Yeah, well, I he... think Walt was the fastest today uh, in terms of speed, and if you look at what happened um in 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 the in the sprint so we can see it on on the images here uh first we have Walt van Aert in the wheel of Christophe Laporte ideally placed um their first and second position and they have uh, a bunch of other sprinters fighting for either fighting for the wheel or uh you know trying to come up with their own lead out but he was ideally placed then comes a point where Mathieu van der Poel goes, 
with Philipson on the wheel. And at that point, Christophe Laporte slows down. And I mean, and it's difficult to him. Mean, he can't look behind, you know. So sometimes it's just pure luck. But when Van der Poel makes his move, um, Laporte slows down and Walt Van Aert is crushed in between the wheel of uh, Laporte and Van der Poel and Philipson. And that's where basically he has to slow down really bad. You can see in the next in the next uh, picture that he he loses three or four positions, and then finally, so then Van der Poel goes, with with Philipson at the same time. Pedersen comes on the right, and Van Aert is like sixth or seventh position again, and then has to come back, and still finishes third and comes with incredible speed. You know, it's it's you know on, I I watched I'm in Belgium now, so I watched it on Belgian TV, right? I I normally I I watch it on Eurosport, so I watched it on Del- Belgian TV and the Belgian commentators, are, yeah, you know, Walt would have won this on one leg, you know, <laughs> uh, that's not as easy as that, but for sure he was really unlucky. Uh, he was he had this stage in his in his mind. He said it this morning. This morning he was clear that you know yesterday he didn't want to sprint. Today was a good stage for him. They were going to try to go for it. That, that's what he said, and um, and yeah, I mean, it doesn't always work out. Um, he, you know, he was he was there. He had everything perfect until 150 meters to go, and got boxed in and had to do. And, and the fact that he's able to slow down, go around these guys, and come back says a lot about the power of Walt Van Aert. Yeah, once once you get stopped from your progression, most people sit up. Yeah. Or they can't, or they can't get that speed back in that short of yeah. time. It was remarkable. Yeah. Okay. Let's jump into tomorrow, and uh, why don't you tell us more about this finish? That's historical significance. Mm-hmm. I think you'll find very interesting. Yeah. Well, Puy de Dome. Uh, it's it's since 1988 that the Tour de France hasn't uh, hasn't gone there. Personally, I've never done it. Uh, neither not as a rider, not not as a director. Um, I mean, yeah, the first time I did the tour was 1990. So two years, two years before that, uh, they, they did it for the last time, but you know, there's, there's certain, there's this mythical, uh, moment and mythical cycling picture. Uh, lots of people who follow the history of cycling will know this of, uh, Puy de Dome in 1964, where we had this big battle between the two French riders, Jacques Anquetil who went on to win five times the Tour de France and Raymond Poulidor, who never won the Tour, the, you know, uh, grandfather of Mathieu van der Poel, um, who was, you know, all, uh, sometimes second, won a lot of races, but never the Tour de France. And, and, you, and you guys have, you've talked about him a lot. He was just loved. He was like one of the most loved cyclists ever, even though he never yes. won. Yes. Yeah. I mean, in that period, Anquetil, who was the best cyclist, was hated. And Ramon Polidor was just loved by everybody. Why didn't they like Ancatil? Just dominance <laughs> through that era? Because they love you until you win all the time, and then they start hating you. The French don't <laughs> like winners. If you <laughs> if you win once, it's fine. If you win too much, it's then they choose for the loser, like the <laughs> the second. They always, always go for an underdog. That's like in their in their nature. In their yeah, always, always you can you can be good but not too good. If you're hmm. too good, they don't like you anymore. It turns um, quickly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but so we have this mythical moment of them uh, fighting it out and and touching each other. Um, this picture is is very famous. So I I thought I brought that I bring that up. Nineteen sixty four. 
actually the year, the year I was born. <laughs> um, then we have uh, Puy de Dome, for me personally, very famous uh, of 1974, which was in the in the big years of Eddie Merckx uh, winning winning the Tour de France. And um, we, I have this little clip here of Eddie Merckx in yellow having a big fight with, with Bernard Thévenet, the French star, and he gets hit in the side uh, of by a French spectator. Um, and we can see on the on the other pictures how you know the, the, these pictures are from after the stage how how hurt he was and and finally you know that 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 incident made him lose the Tour de France. I remember that very very well because uh, I was ten years old then and you know it was Eddie, it was Eddie 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 in Belgium and this you know incident with Puy de Dome was like yeah you know, it was it was a national it was a it was a state's affair. Mm. No, it was it was so uh, so important. Were there? Do you recall? Were there ever? Well, who hit him? And then well, it was there, a French. I don't know. It was a French, was a French fan. Uh, yeah, French. Well, it's not. It was a French fan of Tevenet. Uh Eddie Merckx was by then in this position, like you know, he he won too much, and he had these these guys reeling behind the French guy, right? Uh, Bernard Tevenet, who finally went on to win the Tour de France twice. Um, but yeah, that particular incident, uh, there was, there's two, I think there's two incidents of Eddie Merckx. One uh, is that hit in his, in his side, which, you know, didn't look like much at the beginning, but there was some kind of organ. I don't, I don't know which one, uh, was, was touched and, uh, yeah, he, you know, he couldn't, uh, he couldn't recover from it. And then another time, another time, I think he had his jaw broken by somebody who, who hit him. Um, but, but I, I, I mean, I may be wrong on that, but I do remember him riding with a broken jaw in the Jeez. Tour de France. Yeah. Wow. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, Eddie was back then also, uh, like Ankatil, he was the unpopular guy, way too, way too dominant. And they were tired of him winning their race. Wow. Interesting. Um, so okay. we're going back there tomorrow. Yeah. Um, what can you expect tomorrow? Well, you know, it's 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 not an easy stage, but it's for sure going to be decided on the Puy de Dome. You know, it's uh, it's a thirteen-kilometer climb with an average of seven point seven percent, but that average uh, is divided in between the first um, eight and a half kilometers, which are kind of very accessible for most of the riders and then the last four and a half kilometers of this climb it's super steep between 11 and 12 percent all the time and so um well for sure we're going to see a battle again between between Jonas and, and Tadej there's there's no doubt about that I don't think anybody can follow these guys uh it's to be seen what how they're going to race you know um if Jumbo does the same thing like they've done um, on 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 the Marie Blanc where where Vingegaard dropped Pogacar and the same thing like on the Tourmalet or if they ride it differently um, personally if I'm in their shoes I would say hey okay we're in yellow we we don't need to make a decision here we don't we don't need to take the initiative where we 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 get to the bottom of the last climb and it's up to up to Pogacar and his team to try to drop us um we are in front you know we're we're in yellow and we're in 25 seconds ahead so 
um, what I would do is I would focus on 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 UAE on Pogacar, let him put in the attacks. Uh, if Vingegaard is good, he should be able to follow them, and then maybe after two or three attacks, try to counterattack him and and take take advantage like that. Because if it's the same Pogacar as we've seen on the Tourmalet and on Cotteret, he's not going to drop him easily, Vingegaard. So I would try to play it like that, but you know, I, I just think they're going to ride. Uh, they're going to just, uh, just do what they've been doing. <laughs> yeah. I think they're going to ride. They, they, they have their, you know, their plan. They know how strong they are. They have, you know, they have Van Barle, then they have Benoit, then they have Kelderman, and then they have Kuss and, and Jonas Fingergaard. That's, they're going to, that's what they're going to do. Uh, it, it's the it's you know it's the way how they how they race. It's probably also the way how Jonas Vingegaard knows how to race. Um, as I said before, you know, to me it seems like he's more a rider who races on a plan. And okay, we do this, 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 boom, that's it. There's no, there's not so much instinct in the race. Pogacar is completely different. He has race instinct already since since his amateur years. Um, so so yeah, we'll see. I mean, they're not going to listen to us anyway. Uh, but, but <laughs> you might but, be surprised, Johan, if he's would, listening to would, you. <laughs> there are there are a lot of people who within the Tour de France peloton who listen to the move to JB squared mm-hmm. La Movida. Um, I know for a fact that on the transfers from the hotel to the start, we're 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 kind of we kind of heard a lot in 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 France. Yeah. Now, if if you heard the move earlier today, George feels like the uh, the punch count, if you want to call it that, between uh, Pogacar and Vingegaard is about even. Lance feels very much as if the momentum has all shifted to Pogacar. Mm. Um, because that's the last thing we saw between the two of them. What yeah. do you think? Do you think they're? I I I think they're quite equal. What, what I could not explain was uh, not so much that Vingegaard was so strong on the Marie Blanc. It, it was how Pogacar was not able to respond. He was not on his level there. Um, and then I was really surprised also to see him the day after uh, changed. So. You know, you can you can you can measure and calculate anything you want. There's still human human bodies that react differently. I was impressed by Pogacar. I have to say, you know, if if I if you compare the image of Jonas Vingegaard attacking on the Marie Blanc and leaving um, Pogacar behind, that's impressive. But I think it's especially impressive because you. Uh, you Pogacar was not able to react. He just had to stay his same tempo. But if you look at the attack of Pogacar on Cotteret, that was incredibly. That was that was super explosive. And 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 Vingegaard tried to react, and he kept losing a little bit of time. Not not as much as as today, the day before. But the attack of Pogacar to me was more impressive than the attack of Vingegaard on the Marie Blanc. So. Um, We'll see. You know, we'll see. I think uh, they had a few days now to to take it easy uh, in 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 the stage. Uh, tomorrow, I'm going to be sitting in front of my screen. Um, yeah, I mean, 
probably saying, what the hell are these guys doing? <laughs> All right. Uh, cool. I'm looking forward to tomorrow. I think everybody is. Let's jump into our Ventum trivia of the day. You could win an NS1. Again, the, the, the concept is very simple. If you know the answer, email it in. I'll give you the email at the end. Don't send them to me. I've gotten a few of those. I'm going to send them to Ventum. Answer the question. They'll take all the right answers. The people who had the right answer draw one each day at the end of the tour. Then they're going to draw one of those names and you win a complete NS1. How cool is that? Yesterday's question, just to give you the answer for fun, was what is the longest stage ever recorded in the history of the Tour de France? The answer was the seventh stage of the 1919 edition with a distance of 482 kilometers. That's 299 miles. And you think about it, as Lance said, and the equipment they were on in 1919. <laughs> and, and that's not one stage. Then they had, they had other stages, which were only 430. <laughs> Incredible. All these, I mean, I, I think that I've, so, I've seen once a map of, of a Tour de France, and, and it was literally the Tour de France. So they started on the top, and they went around just on the the Tour de France, but the borders. Uh, yeah. And I think it was like six or seven stages. That's it. Uh, so. Long. <laughs> long. And what were the margins between times? I'm going to have to look some of those up. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, wow. Different world. I mean, yeah. you can't imagine. Today's question, and then again, stick around, get a pen ready for the email. And you can go search the answer. You can Google it, do whatever you need to do. Which cyclist won the Tour de France immediately after World War II had ended? Which cyclist won that? All right. Search for the answer. Send it to trivia at ventumracing.com. If you have the right answer, uh, you'll go into the drawing for today and possibly at the end of the tour. Okay. Good luck. Couple of questions for you, Johan. I know we're going a bit long here today, but exciting things have happened. Uh, I do want to do a couple questions with you. So here we go. Uh, in regards to the Myojon, does the tour simply have uh, every uh, teams printed on it and all the shapes and sizes prior to the tour, or how do they do that? And then the second question from Tyler, uh, Tyler is about Jonas Vingegaard. So answer that one first, and then I'll give you the other question. How do they yeah, do okay, that? Yeah. So the yellow jersey, no, no, they don't have everything prepared. What the teams have to do before the Tour de France, actually not before the Tour, just at the beginning of the season, you send in your logo digital digitally what you want on any leader's jersey, for example, with any race with ASO, with the Tour de France, right? So... Paris Nice and, and Dauphiné and Tour de France. So uh, they have uh, this machine at the finish, at the podium. So it doesn't matter who is in any jersey. They know, then they check. They know that they know the size. And when the guy shows up for the protocol, just before it, they need one minute. They take the jersey. They have the size. They have the logo. They just print it on there and just goes on the podium and, and and pulls it on. You will see, for example, that if when it's a new leader in a competition, he will only have the logo printed on the front. Those jerseys are special. Not usually uh it's jerseys that have a zipper in the back. It's just so for the have, podium. Just for the podium, yeah. So they pull they pull they pull it on and then they 
they have the publicity on, but no, they have it. They, they print it there on site. Okay. Thank That's Tyler with that question. His second question is how does a, a guy like Jonas Vingegaard with his stature produce so much power through the pedal? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, listen, he, he's, uh, He's once uh, one meter seventy one, so that he's not he's not very tall. What is that? He's, in, about, uh, he's, he's about five five. Okay, and he weighs sixty kilos, which, which is, is about a, about one hundred and thirty two pounds. Okay, so he's not he's not tall. He's tiny. He's light. Um, that's what climbers are are built like. So it all comes down to the watts per kilo. Um, he, Jonas Vingegaard to develop. 6.8 watts per kilo has to has to generate a lot less watts compared to a guy who weighs 70 kilos which is you know 68 70 kilos is what most Tour de France riders weigh probably uh depending on depending on their stature so it's it's not it's not the 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 the, the absolute amount of watts but you know compared to the compared to the weight so um Six, six, six watts per kilo for him. Uh, what is that? It's that's uh, that's three hundred and sixty watts, right? Um, I would think, yeah, probably. Uh, yeah, six watts per kilo. So, um, so you know, he, he's. He, I don't know what his maximum is, but but obviously he he will not push the same watts as Walt Van Aert. Mm-hmm. Who probably weighs at least fifteen kilos more. Yeah. Who who was the the most impressive climber you recall because their size was so big? No doubt, Miguel Indurain. Indurain, no, no yeah. doubt. How, what yeah. was his what was his race size? His weight. Miguel Miguel is probably. I mean, um, I would say. <clears throat> He's probably 187, 188, uh, which is which is quite tall. Um, and uh, in terms of weight, I would think he was when he was really, really skinny. I think he was probably 76, 77 kilos, and that and that's that's a stretch. I think that's about be, 170 pounds. Yeah. So, uh, but he was he was impressive. He was he was you know. He looked skinny, but he was massive, uh, and it was it was incredible to see him ride in the in the mountains, seated in the in the, in the saddle, just you know, just pushing pushing the power. Ulrich is probably up there too on that list. Um, no, I think I think I mean he's he's tall and he was, but Miguel was bigger, Miguel, that significantly yeah. bigger. Wow, impressive! Yeah. I know. I remember, and I mentioned this earlier this tour getting a photo with Indurain, meeting him in Austin <laughs> and just, I, I, he just seeing this, I go, wow, this, these, the height and the size is just like, I was dwarfed next to him. I remember, I mean, I'm, I'm one eight. How tall are you? Uh, five, I lie and say six foot, but I'm five eleven. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm six <laughs> foot. I'm six foot. I'm one eighty one eighty three. Uh, and so I remember Miguel, uh in you know in belgium the the day after liege um or was it no it was actually the day after the time trial when so i i i got the yellow jersey when when i won the stage with him then he took it off me in the time trial and then that the day after we had a transfer day to the alps and so the the belgian press 
wanted a picture of him and me, you know, and when, when he shook my hand, it was like <laughs> this big hand, you know? Mm -hmm. So, wow, that was, that was kind of, kind of like really like scary. <laughs> yeah. And you know, people forget when, uh, when you're bigger on the bike, people get out of your way. <laughs> they did for me. He's just not a, a lot of people. Not, not a lot of people when they do his way. I, I, no. know, I know that. You're going to give Miguel Indurain whatever he wants. Hey, great questions, Tyler. Appreciate it. If you want to ask Johan a question for a future show, send it in JB2, JB squared at we do.team. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow. I'm really looking forward to uh, this, this duel in the mountains here. This is going to be good. Thank you, Johan. Okay. Thanks, JB. Speak tomorrow.